This morning's scripture reading is from Acts chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, feel free to follow along. Um, otherwise, it'll also be up here on the screens in front of you. Hear the words of the living and the true God. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John. And he said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But, that, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Brent. What more is there to say? That was a pretty excellent sermon that just got read right there. All right. Well, I'm excited to go through Acts 3 with you today and see what the Lord is saying to us today. Uh, first, I want you to do something for me. Yes. I barely said anything. I'm already asking you to do something. Uh, it's all right. It may be miserable at first, but it's only going to take about 10 seconds. I want you to think of something. 
Um, I want you to think of your cringiest moment as a Christ follower. Since you've been following Christ, not your BC days, but since you've been following Jesus, since you've rested and re- rested in and received him, this may be something that still today you, re- you, uh, you struggle receiving God's forgiveness for. This may be something that still haunts you. Maybe something that when you think about it, you feel embarrassed. Um, it may just be your lowest moment. You may just think of it. This was my lowest moment since I started following Jesus. So I'm going to give you 10 seconds. You're going to think of that, okay? Think cringy. All right, here we go. Father God, we believe your word. We're grateful for your word. We're grateful that that this word is a a living and powerful uh, word in our life. Um, That whenever we read it, whenever we hear it, whenever it is opened up to us, that uh, we uh, we are not hearing the words of just a man or even just a wise man. We are hearing you continuing to preach to us, Jesus. And we pray that this morning, that as I say amen, that it would be as if I dropped the mic and Jesus, you pick it up and you would preach to us through your word and your preaching ministry would continue by your spirit uh, to minister to us. uh, And we we ask for that and we, we wait for it. And we pray that you give us ears to hear uh, and, and that our hearts would be open. We pray that. We, we, we say we need your spirit. We, we invite you uh, to work in us. We cannot do any of this by ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we take a look at this passage, it's important to consider the message that the author, Luke, had in mind for his audience. We have to, uh, whenever we're looking at uh, a, a passage, we first have to be historians uh, and look at who this author was speaking to and what his message was to them. And then we look at what is he speaking to us today by speaking that to him, to them. Uh, in the book of Acts, Luke's message is that God has sent his spirit to empower his people to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. That is Acts Some major themes that we see in Acts are the empowerment of God's people to perform signs and wonders, to proclaim the gospel for mass conversions. We see the global reach of the gospel, which was more narrowly the the scope of it, the scope of God's people and and being welcomed into God's family and the message of of God's favor was narrowly defined and, and, and the scope of it was for mostly Israel in the Old Testament. And we saw the seeds there for evangelism, but we didn't really see it lived out until Jesus had come, he had died and, and ascended, and re- resurrected and ascended, and then sent his spirit. We see the gospel going to the ends of the earth. We see Gentiles, all kinds of people coming into God's family, being welcomed in. We see glimpses of, and this is just exciting, the undoing of sin's effects, the undoing of them. 
what we have lived under for thousands of years. And we see healings, we see language barriers created way back at Babel coming down. As John Ransom said last week, that Acts is not just a history book. It's a happening book. This is us. This is what is continuing to happen. We are another chapter in Acts. I'm going to turn this on just to... This is accountability for me that I don't go till 11 o'clock today, which I'm not. I won't. I'm not. Um, so that's Acts. God has empowered, he sent his spirit to empower his people to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. Acts 3 gives us a real-time view of spirit-empowered Christians ministering in word and works. We get to see it. We get to peer into this happening in real time. The events described in this passage are the stuff of viral videos. And if it had been a viral video back in the day, I think that it would have been one of those with the ads. You know, that was like the worst thing that ever happened to YouTube is ads. But whatever. I feel like this one, I feel like right before the guy gets healed, they cut to an ad for a Benny Hinn conference or something like that. Please no hate tweets. I'm not promoting Benny Hinn. Just joking around. So I would sum up the, the theme of this passage like this. God has empowered his people to minister in word and works. Now, if we're honest, though, we messed that up. We, we, we are not perfect yet. We're being made perfect, but we mess things up. Even when we have a perfect model like Jesus, even when we have a great model like in this passage, we, we tend to neglect works or the ministry of the word. We may emphasize the ministry of the word and works are just an, an afterthought. Or we might, we might really emphasize works and we totally neglect the ministry of the word. The ministry of the word is the priority, but the gospel should be clothed in good works. It really should be clothed in good works. So we mess that up. The, the, the balance, the, the, the not neglecting one or the other, we, we do it. The other thing that we tend to do is on the topic of miracles, we tend toward one of two unhelpful extremes. So rather than allow these things to hijack our walk, as we go through this passage today, I will be trying to point you to a resolution we find in Christ and his gospel for us to lead a spirit-empowered life. Now in the big picture of this passage very simple. We have a sign and we have a sermon. Let's start with the sign that comes first in the narrative. We're looking at verses 1 through 10. This is where we see the sign. Peter and John go up to the temple. Why? Why are Peter and John two people who know that the Christ has come? He has sacrificed himself, a sacrifice that is once for all, that it cannot be improved on. They saw him after he was resurrected and ascended, and now they've received his Spirit, and they're still going to the temple. Why? Okay, so this is really early, right after Jesus ascended. Commentators say AD uh, 33 or 34. Like this, this is somewhere within a year of Jesus ascending. This is really early. You and I have the benefit of a couple thousand years of this stuff being processed. Okay? They did not. The Jewish Christians at this time continued going to the temple, continued to live as observant Jews for, for a while, and probably still, still offered 
sacrifices at the temple. The implications of Jesus' death in regard to such Jewish practices were not yet understood. Another case in point, whenever Jesus came and Peter, remember Peter's out on the boat and he recognizes Jesus on the shore. Where's Peter at? What is he doing? Jesus has died and he's rose again. Peter's back at his old job. He hasn't yet processed and seen what are all the implications and the outworkings of what I just saw. He hasn't yet. And you know, you and I wouldn't either. We wouldn't know how all of that changes everything yet. And that's why you see them still going to the the temple. Now, just like Pillar, the Jewish community also had two services, two two gatherings. uh, But instead of the 9 a.m. and the 11 a.m., they had the 9 a.m. and the 3 p.m. Oh, and they they had them every day, so try fitting that into your schedule. Um, They were so regular, they became time markers throughout the day, the 9 a.m. sacrifice and the 3 p.m. Um, so as they're, John and John and Peter are walking up at the 3 p.m., notable, Jesus died at the time of the 3 p.m. The sacrifice was being offered. Jesus was the sacrifice once and for all. It happened at that time of the day when the evening sacrifice was happening. So they're walking up, and a lame man catches their attention when he asks for alms. The man is described as being lame from birth. This is notable. This is not a hypochondriac. This is not someone who twisted their ankle last week. This guy has never walked, ever, a step in his whole life, lame from birth. And it further establishes the remarkability of the miracle that happens. I think that's why Luke is telling us about that. Peter says to him, look at us. And the man looks. Peter says to him, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. In the name of Jesus, this was not as familiar to the early church community back then as it is to us now. We've been using this for a long time. Peter is using this as a very recent phrase. And some commentators, I just bring this up because it's interesting what people say sometimes. Commentators have not not very many, this does not have broad evangelical support. But some commentators have speculated that this phrase was a form of early Christian magic uh, to invoke a magical name to bring about powerful effects. But this sounds less like Peter who witnessed the risen Christ and is empowered by his spirit than, and more like Peter the Hogwarts University online grad who's living out his Harry Potter fantasy. That's what that sounds like more. It doesn't sound like the Peter that we see in Acts who has witnessed the risen Christ and is empowered by his spirit. But in all seriousness, seriousness, though, many people at this time and place did believe in the power of certain sacred, secret names that you could use. That was a reality, but... If you give a full survey to the book of Acts, Luke, you actually see that Luke is interested in showing the life of the early Christian church in contrast to these ancient magical practices, not that they were adopting them. And, oh, you use that name? We just use Jesus to work magic. It wasn't like that. It was like, we don't use magic. We speak in the name of Jesus, the risen Lord, and he does these works. It's not us. We don't have a formula. We appeal to him, and he is the miracle worker. 
And so you see that Peter is, before this is even happening, he's verbally, literally, explicitly saying, this is not me, this is not my name, I don't get the credit, I'm not doing this, in the name of Jesus. Rise up and walk. The meaning and the intention seems to be more the authority, by the authority and the power of Jesus on behalf of Jesus. So Peter is appealing, he's putting himself out of the way, and he's saying, this is something that the Lord is going to do. Look at what the Lord is about to do. So Peter takes the man by the hand, and he raises him up, and his feet and his ankles are made strong. He leaps, and he walks, and he praises God as he follows Peter and John to the temple. The people see him leaping and walking and praising God. They recognize him, and the after the gathering ends, they run out to the portico, this covered walkway that is leading into the entrance of the temple to see what happened. Now, in this place that, that they, they follow Peter and John, this man who's clinging to Peter and John after the gathering, they follow him out to the por- them out to the portico. And this place is actually, we see in John 10, uh, that this is a place where Jesus himself taught. And so believers are returning to a familiar spot becomes a favorite hangout spot for early Christians. And, uh, and out there on the portico, Peter sees the crowd and he addresses them. And that's how we move into the sermon. But before we move into that sermon, there are some encouragements and some exhortations that we can take from this passage uh, about the sign. First of all, the lame man. The lame man, he's described as a lame man. Now, in the, uh, in the Old Testament, we see in the, in the law and the, and the laws about uh, purity and everything like that, that if a person was lame, they were called blemished and therefore not allowed into the inner courts. But scripture shows personal encounters where people's literal physical direction and their position is changed in the personal encounter And it has a corresponding course of life change as well. For instance, Simon. Simon who carried Peter's cross. Or Peter's cross. uh, Jesus' cross. You got to call me out on this, guys. Just kidding. Uh, He carried Jesus' cross. Where was he heading? Was he part of the crowd who was walking with Jesus up to the hill? He was not. He was, the Bible says he was headed into the city while Jesus is headed out of the city. They were going in opposite directions. He's going into the city to celebrate the Passover, but he gets called out and commanded to carry Jesus' cross. And so that encounter there with Jesus changes his literal direction. And also we see support for it change the course of his life later. Commentators point out that uh, there's a lot of support for uh, seeing this same Simon as part of the early church later, that this changed the course of his life, this encounter. And we see that also in this lame man that he doesn't get up and be like, hey, thanks guys. And he goes away from the temple and on with his, his life. He comes into the temple. He is now allowed in. And And this lame man who is outside the temple, who encounters him, and he experiences this wholeness in his body, but he experiences spiritual acceptance as well, which points to the spiritual acceptance of all who place their faith in Christ in the gospel. This is a a recurring theme through Acts. 
that those who are previously rejected as unworthy for worship find full acceptance in Jesus. Uh, so before, before we, uh, there's, there's a couple other things to say, but I want to say this. The, besides the obvious miraculous nature of the miracle, uh, the event that happened, there was something else that was significant about this. And it's possibly something that the, the, the crowd had in mind whenever they saw this. Uh, Isaiah, because they had Isaiah read regularly. The prophets were read in the temple. They're familiar with these. And they probably would have been familiar with Isaiah 35, 6, which says, it says this, Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. And they're seeing this before their eyes. They're watching what was prophesied long ago about the new age that is to come. And they're seeing it happen. And they're seeing this man leaping. And so I want to say this, spirit-empowered people through spirit-empowered words and works give the world glimpses of the kingdom and of the age to come. We give people glimpses. We give the world glimpses of the kingdom in the age to come. Now, with that being said, sometimes we make the kingdom visible to the world by being nearly invisible ourselves. Peter, he's not very invisible. I don't know. It would take a miracle to make Peter invisible. He's just, that's part of his personality too. Part of it is spirit empowered. Part of it is Peter is ready to stand up and say something, jump out of the boat, do something. He's ready to do something. You know, he's ready to say something. He's, he can't sit still. And there's, that's beautiful in a way, but there's also something about John here. Where's John? It's like asking, where's Waldo? You know, what is he doing? John is in the background. He's not recorded doing anything separately from Peter in this entire narrative. He walks up to the temple with Peter, not notable. He looks at the lame man with Peter, not notable. He's clung to with Peter and chased after with Peter, just not notable. He's not even separate from Peter in this. And this actually happens several times in the book of Acts in the early portion where Peter and John are seen together But Peter is doing all the speaking and the acting. John is not saying, hey, Peter, I need some mic time. We're going to trade back and forth. We're going to tag team this because I want some of the credit. I want some of the spotlight. He's just not. He's just, he's there. He's in the background. And this is the person that Jesus trusted the revelation of the things to come to him and not Peter. He writes the gospel of John. He writes first, second, third John. And then he writes the revelation to John. And yet there's no miracles ascribed to John in the New Testament. There's, why I'm saying this is there are challenges to our measures of significance and our measures of spirit empowerment. In the scriptures, they challenge what we see as what we measure as spirit empowered. To be a spirit-empowered person is not necessarily to have a charismatic personality. It's not necessarily to be in the spotlight or to draw crowds. These are false measures of spiritual empowerment. It's not only possible to be spirit-empowered and to stand in the background. It's probable. Most Christians will never attract 
large crowds like Peter did. And they are not called to. Because it wasn't really Peter who did that anyway. Jesus, by his spirit, were drawing these crowds. He worked the miracle by his spirit, and the crowds were drawn. Most of you are probably relieved of the fact that you probably will not draw a huge crowd because 75% of people, according to the National Institutes of Mental Health, rank public speaking as the number one fear. Higher than sharks. They would rather speak, do what I'm doing, or they would rather be eaten by a shark. <laughs> I don't know if I'd go that far, but I'm just saying, higher than Habu, higher than sharks, relief, because most of us are glossophobes. That's the word for it. Most of you are glossophobes. It's okay. It's, it's normal. But let me say this. God has called you and empowered you. If you are part of God's family, if you've rested in and received Christ, you are part of his family, and there's no part of his family that is not called and no part of his family that is not empowered. We can not walk in, a, in, uh, in attunement to that spirit. We can, we can walk in the flesh and not in the spirit, but it doesn't mean that we have not received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have whenever we believed, whenever we became his, he indwelled us. You are called and your spirit empowered. It's not the person who stands up here and doing what I'm doing right now or limited to the band or these different roles. We're all called to the work of the ministry. Your particular calling may involve one-on-one interactions. It may be small groups. It may even be that your role, your job, your calling may involve spending large chunks of time not even around people. And yet... When you are doing the ministry you are called to, it is a ministry of power because the measure of a ministry of power is not the number of people, is not the type of work you do. It is that it is Jesus's ministry. It is that it is a spirit-empowered ministry. He's a powerful spirit. And so your ministry, the one that you are called to, is really Jesus's ministry, and it's a ministry of power. And you, when you do it, you make Jesus' kingdom visible when you do it. It's not just Peter's. It's not just Paul's. Who People are like, I can see it. I can see the kingdom. No, when they look at you, when you're doing what you're called to do, and you're walking in, in the spirit, and you're walking that spirit empowerment, you're giving glimpses to the world of what God's kingdom is like. Now, when it comes to signs and wonders, and I'm going to take a sip before I get into this one. When it comes to signs and wonders, like I said earlier, we tend to fall into one of two camps. All about miracles, like miracles are everything, or miracles are a forgotten paragraph in the church position statements like we believe in miracles yeah blah 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 but this is why they never happen blah 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 and explain it away it's like okay nobody is really going to pay attention to that at all and I'm not picking on one side the the side that is all about miracles 
is about the gifts rather than the giver. They're not about God's heart. They're about receiving what God uh, is, is going to give to them. And criticisms are justified on both sides. Criticisms leveled at both sides are justified. Unfortunately, it gets worse. We don't just find ourselves taking these extremes. We take a gift that was intended for, and I'm not going to give you the answer yet, what was the gift intended for? What are signs and wonders intended for? What are they intended for? Does anybody know? Yes. Yes. Were they intended to be used as a platform to tear down brothers and sisters? Do we see that anywhere in the scriptures? Do we see it modeled in the scriptures? Now, I'm not talking about Elijah because he did a few things that were like, whoa, all right, that tore a few people down. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about uh, what Elijah, I'm talking about uh, the, the spirit empowerment in, in Acts here, much different than, than what we see Elijah doing there. That's another sermon for another time. But they were never intended to tear down brothers and sisters. They were never intended to become a dividing wall between us. They were never intended to be a pedestal for our pride. Just like my sister in the back here said, they were to make much of Christ, not much of us. When we tear down other people, we are implicitly, even if we don't do it explicitly, building up ourselves and not Christ because we're tearing down the people Christ died for. And we're not honoring the intention that he, with which he gave us these. We, we poke fun at the church who still ask for God for miracles all the time or we look down on the people who never talk about miracles. Why do we do this? Why? We have no models. We have no scriptural basis for doing that at all. We're never instructed to do that. Whenever we walk in that, we have no support in scripture. We have no support in the gospel. We have gotten off track. We have whenever we get to that. I'm not talking about leveling, balanced, level-headed studied criticisms. We, I'm not saying that we should not study these things. We should, and we should listen to voices on both sides who are reasoning from scripture why they, why they are taking this stance. We should study that. What I am saying today is we should forget about the debates that end up in mudslinging and name calling and tearing people down. I would encourage you to not listen to a voice that is doing that, at least on that topic. I would not listen to their voice in, in this because they're, they're not supported by Scripture, by tearing down their brothers and sisters, by criticizing from Scripture and saying, this is why that's wrong. That's not wrong. We should be doing that. But whenever it devolves into a platform to build up their own ministry, their own image, not to make much of Christ, to tear other people down, to name call and mudsling. I want to encourage you to just forget about that and to, to not, don't even waste your time on that. Listen to both sides, but don't listen to the parts of each sides that get into that because that is not why these were given. 
And I want to invite you to do something else. As you forget about the mudslinging, and as you look into this, and you ask God about it, and as you study it, I want to invite you to live in a tension within the spirit-empowered life. There is a tension that we embrace when we believe in and we ask God for miraculous works. There's a tension because we're holding on to a couple things that are in tension, just like we already agree that we live in the tension of the already but the not yet, right? Believers live in a tension of Jesus inaugurated the kingdom, he, the, the new age, has there, there's been an advent of a new age, and in a sense, he's accomplished it, and he's brought it here, and in a sense, it's here, and it's already, and in a sense, it's not yet, and so we live in that tension. We, we know what the, the scriptures say about who we are right now, and what is, what is true right now, and it really is here, and at the same time, we don't see it fully worked out. We don't see the fullness of the age to come. And so we're holding on to those. And it's hard to live in tension. It really is. We naturally seek to let one go because we don't like living in tension. Everything about us is nat- natural, wants to live in relief. I'll let one go. Whew, I get back to my peaceful life. Yes. No more tension. We tend to do that. But the scriptures do place upon us certain tensions. The already and the not yet, it also places on us a tension and invites us into believing that God does do miracles today and yet at the same time, we don't see the fullness of this worked out. We, I can't walk down to the hospital and heal everybody there. Even though I am a forgiven, spirit-empowered believer, I can't do that unless Jesus is going to do that himself. I can't. It's not fully worked out. And, and sometimes there's a misperception whenever we read through Acts and we see all these miracles in short order, it kind of creates a illusion that this was daily life for Peter and John. They just walked around and healed everybody, everywhere, everywhere they go. Uh, and we don't see that uh, here. We don't, we don't have a justification saying that, that they just did this all day long, every day. This was more of an occasional glimpse, it seems, into the new kingdom. That Jesus was filling Peter with his spirit. There was a special filling that day that empowered him. And by the unction of the Holy Spirit, he said this to this man. So I want to invite you to live in this tension and not to relieve it. And here's how we tend to relieve it. We become indifferent So we say, I don't believe in that, and you drop it. A relief, because I don't believe in it, I no longer have to live in tension. I no longer have to pray for it and wait for it. And and whenever I'm in a debate, I can just say, oh, I don't believe in that anyway. So, uh, you know, I'm not crazy, and, uh, you know, I don't have to explain all of that. I don't know what debate you're winning. If you let go of that, I don't know what debate you are winning. So we, we sometimes release the tension by saying, I don't believe in it. Okay, wow, that feels great. I don't have to worry about that. Or we do this. We embrace unreality. If you look at, if you, if, if you conceived of reality, like a line right here, like this is reality. This is what we see right now and we're experiencing right now. This is our hope right here. 
It's up here. There's a gap. All right? This is what we see and what we know to be reality, and this is what we're hoping for. And there's a gap right there, and that creates a tension. The, whenever we are saying, I don't believe in that, we're bringing our hope down to reality. Oh, they meet. No more tension, because I'm not hoping for anything more than what I see right now. The other way is to go, this is what I hope for. Not really seeing it, but I'm convincing myself that it's happening. And I'm inflating the facts and I'm embracing unreality. I'm bringing reality up to the hope. Let me say this. God does not need us to do that. He is a powerful God. He does not need us to make excuses for him. He does not need us to make weak arguments for him or to cover for him. He doesn't need it. He he, he wants us to, live, to admit reality and not to embrace unreality and to hope for that which he can do, but we don't see yet. This expresses faith. This gives him glory. So ask yourself, which of these two extremes do I tend toward? Which side of the tension do I need to pick back up? Because I let it go because it was just, I didn't like living in the tension any longer. Do I have yet to embrace the truth that God does miracles today and that miracles are good? Or is it that I haven't faced the reality that my hopes for the miraculous haven't been realized? There are things that I have prayed for for eight years. There are things that I prayed for for 15 years. And there were myriad temptations along the way to let go and say, you know what? I don't know if God wants me to even pray for this anymore. He hasn't answered it for 15 years. I prayed to come to Japan for 15 years. And there was no opportunity. And there, it didn't come to pass. I was, I was diagnosed with major depression when I was 13. I prayed until I was 21 before I ever stopped having debilitating depress, major depression bouts. Eight years is a long time to spend suffering. This man spent his whole life from birth suffering. God doesn't enjoy watching you suffer. And I can't say that I have all the answers on God's timing. All I'm saying is the scriptures do invite us to live in that tension. And God doesn't give instantaneous results like our culture has conditioned us to receive. He just doesn't. Many times I think that we do see that God does use that time of living in a desert, living in tension to work things in our hearts and sometimes to change our prayers. Prayer is like a journey. Start now and it's going to be messy at the beginning. It's okay. Your prayer is always going to be imperfect. Start now. It's going to be messy. God will actually even change your prayers as you pray he will show you how your heart, there may be intentions that are selfish behind your prayers and he'll help you see how you can pray a better prayer. Sometimes he does change the prayer. Sometimes like, no, you're praying the right prayer and I want you to live in this tension. I don't have all the answers why he does that. I do know he's a perfect father and he's good and he doesn't like to see his children suffer, but he does let us live in that. So, I just want to invite you into that. If you're like me and you don't know where to start on this stuff, start by praying for miracles in your private prayer life. Asking God for miracles 
should be a regular part of your prayer life and your desire. If you are asking rightly, if you are not embracing unreality, if you are if you're not trying to ask for a miracle that a miracle that you can do, because that's another way we try to relieve the, the, the tension is be like, I'm gonna ask for this, and all right, on my checklist, I need to do this, this, and this. And it becomes a goal for us, and we do it ourselves. God doesn't really get the glory whenever we do it ourselves, when we aim for something that we really can accomplish. It is good to pray for things that we can accom- that we uh, have a role in and do- isn't necessarily miraculous, but when w- that doesn't qualify as believing God for a miraculous thing. Because we have no part in setting aside the general rules of the universe to intervene divinely and work a miracle. That is, that is what we're talking about here. All right, so we're getting to the sermon now. Verses 12 through 26. Let me say this. In light of this sermon, I can say the spirit-empowered life does not leave behind the gospel in order to focus on exciting spectacles. There is not a new focus introduced in Acts besides the gospel. The gospel is not, well, you believe in Jesus, okay, you got your ABCs, now we move on to miracles. No, 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 no. The gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The gospel, we will always be living out the gospel, always applying the gospel. The gospel remains the focus. And what we see here in Acts is the spirit-empowered life highlighting and confirming the truth of the gospel of God through the empowering presence of God. That's all we see. The gospel is, has got fireworks around it now. It's not, hey, take that sign down and we're going to watch fireworks. It's highlighting the gospel and it's confirming its truthfulness. This is why we see a sign and then a sermon. Sermons don't always have to have signs. But that's why we see it here in this passage. The saying, and you're probably familiar with this saying, I'm not trying to pick on people because it has a certain truthiness to it. I like that word, truthiness. Preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. Very common saying. Not trying to pick on people, but let me argue this. If you're trying to say, hey, we don't want to just be preachy and neglect the works that should clothe the gospel. If that's what you're saying, it's true. We shouldn't neglect works. While we're prioritizing the ministry of the word, we should be clothing the gospel with works. But I would, I would say that it seems to really lead us to neglect the ministry of the word. It's like, do works. And, you know, an afterthought is to preach the word if you absolutely have to. I don't think that that should resonate with spirit-empowered people who seek to minister in word and works without neglecting either, as we see in this passage and throughout Acts. And Peter, speaking of the sermon, he gives an excellent sermon. A few, th- a few things that I'll highlight is, he just, just to sum it up, he links the healing of the lame man to the death and resurrection of Christ, verses 12 through 16. He puts the people's well-known rejection of Jesus in stark contrast 
to God's approval and vindication of Jesus through the resurrection. And he appeals to the audience to repent and accept Christ as the Messiah sent from God. Peter does not leave them where they're at. Peter knows the gospel changes things. It changes where you're at. It changes the course of your life. It changes your thinking. It changes everything for you. So Peter was speaking to Jews here, but if he was speaking to pagans, Muslims, Buddhists, he would not say, okay, add Jesus to the mix, and nor would he say, stay within what you're doing, just keep living that way, and, and, and you know, believe, believe this as well. You can't, because what Peter knows that what he's preaching here excludes every other way to the Father. And so he says, repent and accept the gospel. Repent of all that you are hoping in right now, your own works, your idols, your other gods, the, the trying to earn your way to heaven. Repent of that. Repent even of your good works that you're doing to try to earn heaven. And accept Christ who is sent from God. This, this sermon is similar to the sermon at Pentecost that was preached the chapter before, but there are some significant differences as well, and I'm just going to bring up one, and it's, it's very notable because it serves to develop the Christology of the early church. You know, I was saying earlier that Peter and John are walking up to the temple because they're still, they're still working out, like, how does this change everything? Well, also, the Christology of the early church, when I say the Christology, I don't mean the, that he's the Messiah and the Son of God. They know that. Before he even died, Peter said, you are the Christ. I'm talking about, they're starting to apply other names that reveal other facets of who Jesus was, like as the Son of God, uh, servant, which we see in the Old Testament, but had not yet been applied to Jesus. And they were like, wait, he's the one who we were talking about, that, that, that was talked about in the Old Testament. That's him. And it just like connects for them. And the holy and righteous one, the author of life. These, these terms had not been applied yet in the New Testament to Jesus, even though the seeds of it were there in the Old Testament. Where is he getting these? We see, we, I think we know that like, you know, Peter and John and the other elders and the members of the church, they're hashing it out since Jesus ascended. And, you know, they're like, the scriptures say this, and we saw this. And as they're talking about that and they're meeting in homes and church members are talking, things start coming together. Different names and titles begin to emerge as helpful descriptors of who Jesus is. They already knew, it was already solidified way before that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But they're also like, like, a, like looking at Jesus like a beautiful diamond, like there's a new facet if you turn it and Je oh, he's the author of life. Oh, he's, he's the suffering servant. He's the holy and righteous one. And these things are showing different facets of who Jesus as the son of God is. They're all being realized and crystallizing in their minds. All right, so Peter gives an excellent sermon. But you know one thing that stands out besides the content? Because the content is awesome. It's excellent. Another thing that stands out is his boldness with humility. Tough to do, but he pulls it off. The sermon begins with a formal address. Men of Israel, 
But then in verse 17, he softens to a more personal brothers. Peter becomes confrontational at times, but not sanctimonious. He doesn't act morally superior to his audience. In fact, the first words that come from Peter's mouth go along with the, the words that he spoke to the layman when he said, in the name of Jesus. He says to them, he says in his sermon, he says, he rejects the idea that the miracle came through his own piety. Do you think that this came through because me and John are good boys? It's not. We can't make that connection. God does not give miracles because we earned them or because we were good this week. And he doesn't not answer prayers. He doesn't not answer prayers anyway, but he doesn't not give us, or he doesn't, is it not give us? He doesn't not give us what we want. I'm sorry, I'm from Southern Illinois. We're not so good with English. And he doesn't not give us things. I think that's right. Help me out here. If we sin, it's like, oh, I sinned this week. He's not gonna answer my prayer. Every prayer God has ever answered was prayed by an imperfect person and prayed in an imperfect way, ever. Nobody's ever been like, I was perfect and sinless this week, and that prayer was perfect. God will answer it. Never has that ever happened except Jesus, who was perfect and prayed perfect prayers. So what does that mean? God answers sinners. He answers sinners in the midst of their sin. He answers sinners in the midst of their sin Praying imperfect prayers, messy prayers. And that gives him glory because his grace is seen. Rather than, I got it all set up, give me my miracle. That doesn't give God glory. But whenever we say, Lord, I'm a, I'm a mess right now. I have messed up. But you are good and you are gracious. I'm coming to you because I had nobody else to come to. You're the one who works the miracles I'm asking you, change my heart, do a miracle in my heart. And we come to him that way. And let me say this about, about miracles. All y'all believe crazier things than what I'm inviting you to believe in today. We believe that a man was born of a virgin, all right? We believe... What the Bible said, there's a lot of things that are related in the Bible. And like when somebody asks me, it's like, bro, that's not the craziest thing I believe. So like, I'll tell you, I believe, I believe what the Bible says. And so you are already someone who believes in miracles and you're somebody who's experienced a miracle. When you were converted, when your heart was regenerated and you were brought from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, when you were brought from spiritual death to spiritual life, this was probably, possibly the greatest miracle that could happen. So you are a believer in miracles and you have experienced miracle, a miracle already if, you've, if, if you have rested in and received Christ. So I just want to say that about miracles. You're already a believer in them. I'm inviting you to live in the, the tension that that the scriptures place on us about miracles today. Now, about the conf confrontational part, and we're drawing it to a close here, about the confrontational part, Peter tells the people twice that they denied Jesus. His words are utterly damning. You denied him even after Pilate decided to release him. Pilate 
an unbeliever who does not know these things probably wasn't waiting for a Messiah. He was ready to release Jesus who healed so many of you. And you denied him still. And you denied the holy and righteous one. And it's just that you embraced utter paradox. You asked for a murderer instead of Jesus. So Peter absolutely confronts them. He doesn't shy away. But soon after that, this echo comes out of Peter's mouth. Just a couple verses later, an echo of Jesus's words on the cross when he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Peter says, I know you acted in ignorance. Peter may have been angry and full of vengeance against these people at one point. We know he was ready to hack and slash before people even laid a finger on Jesus. He had the sword out and he was hacking. But Peter can't stay vengeful because he knows what Jesus said when he was crucified. So who is he as a as a spirit, a person who is empowered by Jesus' spirit, who is he to now hold on to his vengeance and exact that? Instead, he echoes Christ and he says to them, I know you acted in ignorance. And he also knows what he said when, P- when Jesus was on trial, how he himself denied Christ. We have a picture here of a forgiven Christ denier, telling other Christ deniers that there is forgiveness and mercy available to them if they repent. Earlier I asked you to think of your cringiest moment. Denying Jesus was probably Peter's cringiest moment, I would wager. Here we see that not only Peter was forgiven when, when, when Jesus talked to him face to face about it, not only was he forgiven, but that moment was redeemed that others who were, have fallen in the same way might be saved. That's how powerful our God is. He does not need an amazing performance from our power in order to work miracles. He can take even our cringiest moment where our performance was absolutely the lowest and he can redeem it and bring glory to himself and work good in people's lives through it. Peter, being empowered by the Spirit, does not express his own desire for vengeance, but instead expresses Christ's own desire to show mercy. And our conclusion is this. In both the sign and the sermon parts of this passage, we see Peter and, uh, in Peter and John, people who are empowered in such a way that Jesus' healing and preaching ministry continues through them by the Spirit. It wasn't that here's the start of Jesus' ministry, here's the end, and that's where Peter and John and Paul. No, it was Jesus' earthly ministry started here, and then whenever he ascended, he sent his Spirit, and he began empowering his people, and they continued the works of Jesus in his name, by his power, to his glory, for his purposes, to fulfill his purposes for the people that he died for. So we see a model here of what it is to be a vessel of God. Rather than self-powered people 
who cling to their own ambitions, to, who cling to their own way of doing things, who cling to trying to do things in their own strength, full of anxiety, destined to get off track through their sinful tendencies, rather than all of that, we are to seek to be filled with the Spirit so that Jesus' perfect ministry of works and word would continue through us. And when we do that, his ministry will continue through us. And even our cringiest moments can be redeemed to bring him glory and bring the gospel to people everywhere. Now I'm going to ask Kento to come up here. He's going to pray in response to this sermon. He's going to lead us in that.